we've been doing uh, with Psalms uh, just uh, the last few weeks is we, we're planning to look from Psalm, Lord willing, from Psalm 113 to 118. Psalm 113 to 118. The reason why we're doing this for both uh, Tuesday night Bible study and also Sunday is actually the Word of God Psalms, when, especially in times of trial, often minister and speaks to us. But the other reason why we're doing this is because as we're slowly getting closer each day to Good Friday and also Resurrection Sunday or known as Easter, um, these Psalms would have been very important during the last week of Jesus' life. Um, these would, Psalms would be very important for the last week of Jesus' life. Um, I covered over this. Um, we talked about this uh, for some of you guys that were on uh, last Tuesday. Is These Psalms were, were very important for the Jews. These Psalms were very important for the Jews when it was around the holiday called the Passover. Okay, During the Passover, uh, if you guys remember, that's when God rescued uh, that's when God rescued the Hebrews away from Egypt under slavery. And once they escaped, they also had what? The night before, uh, they would have the Passover dinner. Uh, Passover dinner where there'll be a lamb. There'll be bread. They won't be able to be able to have yeast because they're in a rush, okay, to escape out of Egypt. And during that time period, with this, during this time, is they would celebrate every year. The Jews would celebrate that to remember what God has done to deliver and it so happened that when Christ was about to die on the cross, this would have been the week of the Holy Week of Passover week. Okay, And what the Jews would do is they would actually, this Psalm 113 to 118 is what they call Halal Psalms. And they will read this. Every night they will read and sing. Uh, beginning with really the triumphant entry. If you guys remember the triumphant entry, that's Palm Sunday. Uh, right they will, That evening they would have read and sang. Psalm 113. Then the next night would be Psalm 114, Psalm 115, and on it goes until Passover night. And in Passover night, one of the things they'll do very unique uh, uh, is on that night they'll not just only read one psalm; they'll read all, uh, they'll sing all of Psalm 113 and 118. What they would do is before they have their Passover dinner, where they have the lamb, the bread, and everything, and they all gather to remember. Um, part of the ceremony is they'll sing together Psalm 113 to 114. Then they'll eat of the lamb. They'll eat of the feast and the breaking of the bread, um, the bread that is uh, without yeast, which is a little more flattened. And after their dinner and their supper is over, then they will sing again Psalm 115 to 118. Okay, This is very standard Jewish custom. If you look it up online, you can find, or if you know even Jewish friends that are more orthodox, that is not the more liberal or more modernized, the more orthodox, the ones that are more old school and following rabbinic traditions, this is what they would have done. They would have sang these psalms. Now, the reason why we're looking at this, I actually think these psalms were so important in ministering to Jesus Christ. If we think of any one person that has gone through any the hardest thing ever in the world, a human being that has pulled off the most difficult task in the whole wide world, it's actually Jesus Christ who what came on earth, lived a totally sinless life, tempted by Satan and all of that, and yet would die on the cross for our sins. If there's any part of God's word that would minister to Jesus uh, to do the most hardest thing, the hardest mission of all of life, of all of history. I kind of want to know those Psalms, would you not? I definitely would. I want to know how to minister to Him, and I want to know what it is that He read, because those Psalms would also be important for us, but not only important for us to say, hey, this would also minister to us when we go through our trials, but I think it also ultimately is to make us appreciate Jesus Christ more. It's ultimately to make us appreciate Jesus Christ more, because I think these Psalms, 
um, while some are more explicit than others, I think they're actually messianic. That is anticipating the Messiah, anticipating Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us, okay? When you first look at Psalm 114, Psalms 114 is pretty short. How many verses total? There's eight verses, eight verses okay? Pretty short. But I actually think if you read it, at one hand, you could read this and you think, what is there about Messianic? What is there anything future? But I actually think when you read the Word of God, sometimes I think God has put prophecies where at first glance you look and say, it, it looks like the past. It's not talking about the future. But if you pay a little more attention to details with words, with details, with the writing, uh, with, uh, the more you study, the more you say, hey, this is not talking only about the past. There's something about it that's still future looking or future from the time of Psalms written that I would actually say Psalms 114 is anticipating even the work and the death of Christ, even the work and the death and resurrection of Christ. I think it gets even especially crystallized clear when we get to Psalms 118, which is the last Psalm. And when we get to Psalms 118, uh, I think, man, it will be a great feast where you see definitely by the end of Psalm 118, these Psalms are messianic. These psalms are pointing us to Jesus. These psalms, when you look at it, we would say, hey, we've been expecting you, Jesus, the Lord and Savior, who would come on earth and die for our sin, and yet also be resurrected also as well, as proof that God loves us, that God saves us, and that we have hope when we trust and place our hope in Christ as Savior. Okay? So in light of this, uh, in light of all this, what we're going to be looking at is... Uh, two points from this passage, okay? In this study today from Psalm 114, we want to see two points so that we will be in awe with God, with His deliverance, okay? Uh, if you're taking notes tonight, study, we shall see two points to be at awe with God, with His deliverance, okay? We were going to be seeing two points concerning God, or to be at awe with God, with His deliverance. Let me say this one more time. We shall see two points to be at awe with God, with His deliverance. This is the way I divide the two points. Okay, this is the two points that we will have. Okay, this is uh, point number one. We need to be uh, at all with God's deliverance in the Old Testament. So we need to be at all. We need to be uh, uh, be at all with God's deliverance in the Old Testament. Okay, this is looking at the past and saying, "Wow, God has uh, delivered people, has rescued people." In the Old Testament time. This is found in verses 1 and 3. Okay, So point number 1. Be at all with God's deliverance in the Old Testament. This is found in verses 1 through 3. Okay, What, what is the verses? 1 to 3. 1 to 3. Okay? Uh, 1 to 3. Okay? Yes. Be at all with God. Deliverance in the Old Testament. Point number 2. Be at all with God's deliverance. Anticipating. Uh, uh, anticipated through Christ. I'm sorry. I mean, uh, be at all with God's deliverance, anticipated through Christ. Be at all with God's deliverance, anticipated through Christ. And what I'm trying to emphasize here is there's a future uh, anticipation of a future deliverance in this passage, in our psalm, okay? So let me repeat point number two is, be at all with God's deliverance, anticipated through Christ. And this is found in verses four through eight, okay? Four through eight. So these are the two points from the psalm. Let me repeat them again. Point number one is be at all with God's deliverance in the Old Testament in verses 1 through 3. And point number two is be at all with God's deliverance anticipated through Christ in verses 4 through 8. Okay, In verses 4 
through eight. Okay, uh, I had a hard time dividing this. Uh, in dividing this, in fact, um, if you guys know Charles Spurgeon, he's a very famous preacher. Um, he had a hard time too. The commentaries I read, they all divided it interestingly way. Um, Charles Spurgeon just, I mean, he's a good preacher. If you guys ever read him, he's an old Victorian era preacher in the 1800s. It's fascinating. Uh, he, this is what he wrote in his commentary. He says, I do not in, in interrupt the reading of the psalm by any exposition. It is perfectly whole and cannot well be divided without spoiling. So when he preached it, even though he usually divided it up, he just said, hey, you know, it's hard to divide it, basically what I'm saying here, or what he's saying, and therefore because it's hard, uh, I'm not going to divide it up into any part. But these are the two points I divided up into, okay? And I think what it is, is when we look over here, is I think, uh, man, one of these Sundays I uh, maybe would like to go over a series. I actually think Jesus, uh, or the events of God freeing the Hebrews from Egypt, I actually think there's a lot of symbolism. I think it happened in real history, but I think there's a lot of symbolism that God has put to say, hey, there's going to be a future greater deliverance, a greater salvation. That's going to be Jesus Christ saving us from our sins. Not just with ethnic uh, or national enemies like the Egyptians. But God's going to even free us even from the power of Satan. And also gives us salvation that Christ died for our sins. And, and therefore, as a result of this, we should be at all with God. Okay, um, When you look at this passage here, uh, there's a lot of recording of what is called indicatives or statement of facts. With the exception of verses 7. Look with me in verses 7. Verse 7 says, Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob. So the only command that we see in this whole passage, all these other descriptions, is going to be describing what God has done. But what does it apply for us? What should we do? What is our responsibility? It's very clear from verse 7. We should tremble. Okay, That is, we should be at awe. We should worship Him. Hence, our two points for tonight is we must be at, God's, uh, be at awe of God's deliverance. Both in the Old Testament, as verse 1 3 teach, and also the future or anticipated uh, deliverance through Christ, which is in verses 4 through 8. Okay? So, in light of this, let's look at Old Testament history and why we should be at all of God's deliverance. Is in, is we see this deliverance in verses 1 to 3. And verses 1 to 3 is really a Cliff Notes version. Verses 1 to 3 really is like, uh, if you ever read Wikipedia, right? The opening uh, section on the top is like a summary of everything else, details below. So verses 1 to 3 is also really a summary of Old Testament history of how God is a God who is a deliverer. Okay, verses 1 to 3. Let's look first at the first three verses, like I said earlier, summarize the history of the Hebrew, of what God has done in delivering, that is saving uh, Israel. Okay, In verses 1, if you're following along with me, if you're following along with me, this is what verses 1 says. Okay, uh, When Israel went through, forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a land, from a people of strange language. We'll start here. Notice right away in verses 1, it begins, Israel's history could be long and different point, but it begins with Israel at one point, being back when they were still called Hebrews, they were what? Enslaved in Egypt. Okay? Uh, I think uh, besides Jesus Christ dying for our sin, I think most people outside the world, outside even the church, uh, and even within the church, I think the the two most famous stories in the Bible that most people kind of know, even if they never read the Bible, number one is what? Christ died for our sins. Right? Or Christ died on the cross and resurrected. And, which is the greatest story ever told. And then I think the second story most people kind of know is... Uh, the Hebrews being free from what? Slavery in Egypt. The whole ten plagues. The parting of the Red Sea. Okay. Most people kind of have the idea. Because I remember growing up. I don't know if you guys seen this on TV. At least in America. Right. 
is every year around Easter time, they would always have what? The, uh, the what do you call that? TV show, The Ten Commandments. You guys remember that? With the actor Charles, uh, Charles Charlton Heston. Heston. Yeah, okay. Uh, which looks so, he looks like the, what? Uh, the bonafide American guy, right? And, but, so, but the Jews don't look like that. They have darker skin, that kind of thing, okay? But in reading this, you see right away in verses 1, it reviews their history, going back to their slavery in Egypt in verses 1. When it says, uh, when Israel went forth from Egypt, right away, every Jew would have known the story, okay? Going back with this. But then it goes on and says, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. And I think this is pretty interesting. When, so this is describing when they were still under slavery, what it was like. It says they were living with people of strange language. Uh, the word strange language appears only one time in the whole Hebrew Bible. This is the only time that it appears. It appears outside, uh, outside the Bible in terms of other written uh, documents. But here it's, I think it speaks to the idea of incomprehensible, right? You cannot understand what it's being said, okay? Because when you listen to a foreign language, as you don't understand, it is strange, it is incomprehensible. Literally in the Hebrew means it's not with understanding. It is like gibberish, okay? But I also think there's a, another sense with the word here that's being emphasized in verses 1 when it says that the house of Jacob, that is Israel, live with people of strange language. I think there's also the idea that when they were under slavery, right? They were being, what, whipped? And also there was lashing of tongues also as well, Okay? People would have cursed at them. Their masters or their supervisors would have cursed them with a strange language in ways that they would not be able to understand. So I think this is emphasizing the condition before they were delivered. Israel is going through, or the Hebrews was going through these difficult trials and tribulation. No doubt during the time of Egyptian slavery, some of the Hebrews felt that God was small. Do you remember reading the Old Testament? Before God delivered them, uh, when Moses came, at first, they were really what excited, like, "Oh wow, God's gonna rescue us! God's gonna save us!" And you know, Moses threw down a stick, turned a snake. They did the same kind of stunt, or some kind of um, trick. They also were able to do that kind of thing. And then, uh, if you guys remember, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the emperor of Egypt, got really upset and punished him. Say, "Oh, okay, if you want to be freed, then I'm gonna make it your life even more harder." And what did the, God's people right away do? Did they persevere and trust in God? No, they complain. They complain, why did you come, Moses? We don't want you. You cause us more hardship, right? And I think that's the story of us too. Sometimes God sends someone to help, uh, maybe in the church or other means. But then instead of seeing God's big picture, we could complain and say, why did all these trials happen? And of course, God used uh, Moses to bring about ten plagues. And at that time, I could imagine, some people might have felt like for, for a long time they've been under slavery. Wow. You know, Pharaoh looks so big. He claims to be God, okay? They claim to be uh, Pharaoh, the uh, Egyptian religion. Pharaoh, the king, was the sun god. Then they look at their, their own god, the god of the Hebrews, the god of the Bible, and say, where is he? He's so small. But I think God has this deliverance in his right time, okay? I think this would have probably ministered to Jesus Christ. When you think about Christ, he, he also faced, what, evil governing authorities, right? And he would eventually go on a cross and die for it. And at that moment, his disciples would have been so confused. Like, where, why is God doing it this way? We thought he's this great king of king and lord of lord. He's the Messiah. He's going to get rid of the Roman Empire so that we would be our own nation and all of that. They only think of ethnically and politically. But yet God had a bigger picture. He's going to save them and all of us. 
from our sins, okay? So in reviewing Israel history, look also with me in verses 3. Look with me also as well, verses 3. There's another second event that's mentioning, and mentioned, and that's the parting of the Red Sea. There's also the parting of the Red Sea. Notice the first line in verse 3 says, The sea looked and fled. Okay? The sea looked and fled. Okay? In Psalm 114, verses 3. Okay? And it personified now uh, the, ocean, the sea. Okay? It's not that the sea really is alive, but it personified. That is giving human language. Just like sometimes we speak of animals, right? Uh, and we describe them in human ways. Same thing here. It says, The sea looked. The sea saw. All the free, the Egyptian, they saw, I mean, correction, the Hebrews, and they saw the Egyptian army arriving, and they fled. What it means is it's parting the Red Sea, okay? We see this event described in Exodus 14.21. We don't have to turn there. But in Exodus 14.21, it described, I'll summarize, the Red Sea, what? The water's parting so that there'll be form of path, God form a path, so that the Jews, the Hebrews, would be able to cross the sea into safety, and then the Egyptian army followed along, and what happened? It, the waters came down. They made the choice to go through that, or Pharaoh made the choice. And it, the army was destroyed, and God saved them. And God was, what, gracious with that, okay? You also see also as well, uh, from this uh, here, you also see, uh, then verses 3. It really skipped like 40-something years. Okay, the second line says that Jordan turned back. That's talking about the Jordan River. Remember, God saved the first generation through the Red Sea. It wasn't just only one time the ocean got uh, split, where the water disappeared for people to cross over. It happened a second time. The next generation, when God's people wandered for 40 years because of sin, if you guys remember all that drama, they didn't follow God. All they did was just complain, complain, complain. When God uh, finally said, okay, you sinned so much, I'm still going to be gracious. I'm not going to destroy you or anything like that. But at the same time, I will not allow you to go into the promised land. And then your son, the next generation, will be allowed to go in. And that next generation, when they went, they had to cross the uh, Jordan uh, River, and God parted the sea once again. This is described in the book of Joshua. Okay, this is described in the book of Joshua, uh, in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And God parted the sea and let them follow along. And yet in the middle of this, if you're following along with me, you'll notice that I skipped verses 2. I went from verses 1 through 3. And I think there's a reason why. Look at verses 2. Verses 2, this is what it says. Judah became his sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. And I think why this is uh, inserted here, because chronologically, verses 1 goes to verses 3. And in, in the middle of this, it almost as if it's an interruption, is st- giving this statement. And really, verse, sta- verse 2, what it's trying to show here, is God is saying He cares. Okay, In the middle of why did God free them out of Egypt? Part of the Red Sea, why did God allow also as well to be free from slavery and also to be free from uh, and to be able to cross miraculously the Red Sea and also the Jordan River is because God cares for his people, as you see here, and God wants to live with them. Okay, God wants to have a relationship with them again, not because they're worthy, just like we're not worthy, we're all sinful because of God's grace and because of God's love. Okay, I love the language of verse 2. It says, Judah became a sanctuary. Sanctuary is often tied with the tabernacle uh, or the temple. And Israel became his dominion. And I think the selection of choice is significant here also as well. Anyone know anything about Judah? What is Judah? What is Judah? Anyone? Anyone could unmute and answer? Go ahead, Nancy. It means one of the sons of Jacob. Yeah, one of the sons of Jacob, one of the 12 tribes. Jin, you look like you want to answer. Yeah. 
two tribes that split from Israel? Yeah, okay, very good, okay? Because later in Israel history, they were united before under 12 tribes. But that division happened after King Solomon died. His son, they were what? They were not, uh, his next son, he was, when the other men asked, the country, his countrymen asked, hey, could you be merciful? He said, no, I would even be much more rougher. And then therefore what? The kingdom divided. The northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes, is just called Israel. Judah is called what? Just called Judah with, with the two uh, tribes, okay? And I think the significance of verses 2 is this. Even though their history, uh, after um, you know Samuel, 2 Samuel, even though their history in First Kings, they're going to be divided. Yet God still cared about His people, okay? Of, of all the tribes, okay? So I think what it's trying to say here is emphasize why these two names is to emphasize, yes, God still cares. And He still loves them. And He's still compassionate for them, okay? So in light of all this, in light of all this, uh, I think as application, are you amazed at how God delivered Israel? Are you amazed at how God delivered Israel? By the way, whenever we read the Bible, before we apply it to us, and there is application for us, I think we always study what it means in its original context. And then so when we understand what it means, then we draw out application. I think first thing we should see, we should be at awe. Just like verse 7 says, we should tremble. We should be at awe, be like, Whoa, God, you're so amazing. Because when you look at the history of Israel, they were freed from what? Egypt. Was that the last time they were freed? From people that tried to control them? Or people trying to destroy them? No, it didn't just happen once, okay? Then later on, this Syrian captivity. You remember Assyria? If you guys remember your history class when you guys were in high school, Assyria was this uh, big Middle Eastern empire uh, situated in what is now called Northern Iraq. They went over and took the ten tribes, Israel, uh, into captivity, they conquered them, and then they, in order to, to control them, they sold them into slaveries all over the place to make money also as well. And uh, according to uh, Assyrian own record from their own writing, I mean, they bragged about it. They even uh, kidnapped and sold as slave four million people. Even if they exaggerated, that still shows it was a big amount. Okay, of people that they kidnapped and sold into. They were the first people that were involved with human trafficking. Okay, at a at a national scale. Okay, then afterward. The, the last two tribes, Judah, they also were also um, conquered militarily and scattered all over the world, uh, all over the Middle East, in the Babylonian captivity, okay, in 586 BC. We see this, all these things, by the way, this is shown in history. You see the Assyrian records, okay, the Babylonian chronicles, they wrote about outside the Bible, so it's not made up by Christians, okay. Um, the Persians Empire also as well, remember the story of the book of Esther, right, there were people that wanted to wipe out all the Jews, commit genocide against the Jews in the story there with Haman and others and God spared them okay that's why today the Jews celebrate a holiday called Purim which is based upon the book of Esther that God saved them okay then later on some of the Jews came back to what uh, the promised land and then later on on the Persian Empire is switched into the Greek Empire and then from the Greek Empire it goes into which Empire the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire that was the time of Jesus Christ Again, did, did people came over and try to destroy God's people in Israel again? Yeah. For the how many times? I don't, I'm losing track already. Four for fifth time, okay? And what happened then? Uh, they were kicked out. Their temple was destroyed in 70 AD. In fact, if you go to modern-day Italy, they have a big statue also as well um, where you march through. And there's a symbol showing the picture of the menorah, of the, everything they destroyed from the temple, okay? 70 ADs were destroyed. But did God bring back Israel back again in history? Yeah, in 1941. Eight, Israel was his own nation again. I mean, this is the only country that you ever see in the world that they could be taken away from their land. And every time, not just once, not just twice, 
Not just three times. Not even four times. A fifth time. Yet God was still able to bring him back. I think this should give us all that, wow, this is the God we serve. Again, we need to read the Bible first to see God's perspective. And then the application follows this. Wow, God's an amazing God. He's all-powerful. If He could do this for Israel, He's the same God. The same forever, yesterday, today, and forever. That's also working and alive and residing in us if you're a believer. He's the same God that's alive today. And He's the God that has spoken in the Word and is with us with His presence. This should make us love Him and be amazed at Him. And by the way, the history doesn't even stop there, right? I mean, we don't even need to talk. Uh, I even forgot one of what Hitler. He called himself the Third Reich, the Third Empire. Technically, he's not the Third. He, he thinks he's the Third Roman Empire, okay? But even then, God was still gracious and still spare them uh, also as well, okay? And that's part of God's promise is that there will always be Jews, okay? Um, both that, because God's promise of the Savior for the world will come through the line of the Jews, okay? Uh, so in line of this, let's go on. And Jesus, of course, was Jewish. Let's go to the second point, which is the point that I'm really excited about. If the first point is we be at all with God's deliverance in the Old Testament, point number two is this, be at all with God's deliverance anticipated through Christ. Be at all with God's deliverance anticipated through Christ. I think when you look very, very carefully in this passage that we're looking at tonight, at first you might think this is just only Old Testament. When you read this psalm, you might say, okay, I understand why these psalms might be read by the Jews during the Passover because it mentioned in verses 1 about the Passover experience, being free from Egypt, the parting the Red Sea, and going into the Promised Land. But what does that have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with us? I think this passage has to do with us because this has to do with Christ. And Christ is always relevant to us because what? Christ is the love of God, manifested, incarnate. Christ is the love of God who came on earth and He died for us. And I actually think this passage gives us a little insight. It doesn't promise fully. It's not a fully open book. But it's also beginning already to show what? Christ, okay? I think the Bible sometimes is like a it's like the history of TV. When TV first began, it was what? It was very choppy, right? There was no sound. It just for a few seconds, okay? And then boom, that's it, the image, okay? Uh, I remember seeing what in history of documentary class, people, the first time people, uh, TV was what? This guy running, okay? Then later sound, TV got a little more complicated, okay? Uh, or not TV, um, film got a little more complicated. Then they started having what? Film that were five minutes long, ten minutes long. Then there was what the old films of what the black and whites, okay, um, the black and white films, okay. And then later on, they invented what they call talkies. That is, t- uh, that film could have sound, okay. Then they start having not just only film with sound, black and white. Then they have what, color, okay. At first it was Technicolor, okay, that they put color in there, and then it becomes even more uh, complicated, amazing with what VHS. And then now we'll, then with we'll CD, and then now we even have things like streaming, and that we could be at, though we can't be meeting, we could be streaming online. I mean, that's amazing, okay? I bring this to say, that's like the Bible too. The Bible is almost a recording prophecy of Jesus Christ. At first, it's not as clear. It promises there'll be a Savior in Genesis 3, 15, thou crushed him. But then as it goes on, it becomes a little more clear. And then eventually, by the time you get to, um, what, uh, the New Testament, it's not just only in 1080, it's in 4K, right? Like, wow. We see very clearly God's unfolding plan. I would say, I submit the same, is Psalm 114. In verses 4 to 8, it is actually giving us a little window so that by the time you get to 118, you're clearly saying, okay, this is tell- telling us about the death of the Messiah, dying to save us from our sins, okay? 
let's look at verses 4, okay? Let's look at verses 4. Um, just so I could catch my breath, uh, Josh, is Josh still with us? Would you read verses 4? Would you be able to read out loud verses 4 for us? The mountains skipped like rounds, they feel like lambs. Okay. Uh, Hebrew poetry doesn't usually rhyme, but it just happened in English. Rams and lambs just rhyme, okay? Um, the question is this. So when you look at verses 4, the question I had when I was reading this was, when did this happen? Okay. It says the mountains skipped like rams, and the hills, which is smaller than the mountains, are like lambs. Okay. The question I asked when I was reading this is, when did this happen? Okay. If you look at verses 1 and 3, we already shown different point of Israel history. You can look at the Old Testament. You can look outside the Old Testament too, in some cases, where certain historical events happen. But the question we have posed to us is this in verses 4. When did this mountain skip like ram and the hills like lambs? Now, we, I love my wife's answer. Uh, she said Mount Sinai. Okay, Actually, that's most of the Bible commentary's answer. Most of the, my study of, in terms of people looking at the text, preachers and theologians and people that are skilled with the language of Hebrew when they look, most of the times when you read most of the writing, they say, oh, this happened when God freed them from the ten, uh, uh, remember, freed them from Egypt, and then when God gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. I would actually say, if you pay attention very, very carefully to what verse 4 is saying, I would actually say this has not happened at Mount Sinai. It did not happen in Mount Sinai. There's two arguments I want to give why I think this is not talking about what happened in Mount Sinai. The first point is this. Uh, notice it says they skip like rams and they, the hills were like lambs, okay? And you picture ha- uh, lambs skipping, usually it's a picture of what? Happiness. Happiness, okay? But when they was giving the Ten Commandments, um, it was very frightening, yes? Yes. It was very frightening. I mean, if you remember, like, uh, the people didn't not want to go up to Mount Sinai to get the law. And they're like, oh, this is pretty scary. You know what, Moses? Why don't you be our representative? Why don't you go for us, okay? Um, so then they went, okay? And then later God says, okay, do not go into mountain now. Do not even have any mountains, if that's the case. I'm holy and all that. And then they're like, oh, okay, better you, Moses, than me, okay? So th- they went there, okay? And it was frightening, okay? It was very, very frightening. So the idea of the hills skipping, uh, like, little lambs, little happy lamb chops, is probably not the picture, okay? Uh, it's not the picture that's going on here. Secondly, th- there's a second reason why I also argued that this is event has not happened yet in history when the psalm was written. is because of the verb skipped, okay? The verb skipped in Hebrew, uh, when you look at its usage in Scripture, when you see its usage in the Bible, okay? The Hebrew word, it's often associated with happiness, okay? Put your pinky or thumb in Psalm 114 and turn with me to 1 Chronicles 15, verse 29. Again, 1 Chronicles 15, 29. The reason why we're turning 1 Chronicles 15, 29 is I want to show you that the Hebrew verb for leaping is idea is joy, is of joy, not of fear and terror, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, oh no, not 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 29. First Chronicles fifteen twenty nine. Um, so I could catch my breath. Josh, would you be able to read First Chronicles fifteen twenty nine? Uh, Josh. First Chronicles fifteen. Yeah, verse twenty nine. 
covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out over the window and saw King David leaping, celebrating. She despised him in her heart. Yeah. The context of First Chronicles 15 is, remember, uh, David has just become king, and he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant. So before there was a temple, it was temporary, intense. And he's bringing in the box, the, the box that contained all the holy items, going into Jerusalem, that's going to be his capital, and he's going to bring it over there to worship God, and he's celebrating, okay? Notice here it says what? He's leaping and celebrating, okay? He's not jumping out of terror. He's jumping out of what? Joy, okay? So that's one reference, okay? Uh, another one we could look at, uh, actually, uh, for the sake of time. Uh, this, uh, so there's different, uh, uh, actually, let's look at one more. Ecclesiastes 3.4, okay? Ecclesiastes 3.4. What I'm trying to do is show that every time there's leap, the context is one of joy, okay? Skipping out of joy, okay? Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.4. When we turn there, I'll just read this real quick. Uh, Ecclesiastes is Old Testament still. Um, I'm looking at the Hebrew word used for leaped that's found in Psalm 114 verses 4 to show you that it's always often associated with joy, okay? Uh, with happiness. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says this, A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Ecclesiastes 3 is telling us there's different times and seasons in life. There's a time, and notice there's opposites being paired, right? Just like there's a time for weeping, there's a time for laughter. Uh, laughter being the opposite of weeping. Time for mourning or crying, what's the opposite of that? It's a time for dance. And the word for dance here is the same Hebrew word for skip. That is a time of joyful celebration where you, yeah, you're moving, right? You got your moves on for Jesus, okay, so to speak, okay? So in light of all this, we see here, if you guys could turn back with me to Psalm 114 verses 4. I think this passage is not talking about any time in the Old Testament history. I think this is actually talking about future, when there'll be an earthquake. But it's an earthquake that is out of joy, okay? It is out of joy. So I think Psalm 114, if you pay very careful attention to verses 4. By the way, this theme is so important because later if you look at verses 6, do you see the same thing repeating? It says in verse 6, O mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like rams, okay? So this idea is important enough that it's repeating twice. And if it's repeating, it's repeating for what? Purposes for repetition, uh, repetitions for emphasis, okay? So I actually think this is not talking about anything that has happened yet in Israel's history. This is actually talking about when Psalm was right, the writer was writing this. He's actually making prophecy say, this is going to be future. This is going to be happening another day of another deliverance where the mountains will now celebrate out of joy. There'll be an earthquake out of joy. And when is that? Turn with me real quick to Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. Matthew chapter 28, verse 2. And, and Josh, that is in the New Testament. Okay. Matthew chapter 28, verses 2. Matthew chapter 28, verses 2. This is what it says. Okay. Matthew 28, verses 2. I'll read this. Okay. And behold, a severe earthquake has occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. This is actually, on the, Jesus Christ has just died three days before. This is on the Lord's Day, or this is on, uh, on Sunday. On the first day of the week, the woman, were gonna, the woman that was around Jesus' ministry was going to the grave, was walking to her grave. That's the context in verses 1. And right before they got there, before they got over there, verses 2 tells us, Matthew tells us, that there was actually a big earthquake. The earth was shaking. 
And an angel even came down and removed the stone that blocked the grave where Jesus was buried at. And you know what happened? What happened was what? Jesus Christ was resurrected. So the earth was actually shaking. And by the way, this is associated with joy because if you look with me in verses uh, 8, they left the tomb, that is the woman, quickly with fear and with great joy. Okay, So there was a great joy that was also happening at the same time. So I think what is going on here, this is actually Psalms 114. I actually think it's not happened in Mount Sinai because it was not uh, uh, there's a sense of reverence, there's a sense of fear that's associated with it. I think this is predicting that in the future, there will be an earthquake of joy because the earth and the world is celebrating the resurrection of another deliverance. And that is what God's deliverance of all of our sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is Psalm 114 verses 4 and verses 6, the contextual clue of the word skip, and the word skip like lambs, or the idea of joy, is predicting of a greater deliverance that has happened, and that's going to happen with Christ. And think about this for a moment. That night that Christ is going to die, when they read this psalm, or the few days before when they read it at night, and then the night before Christ is going to die, the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ was like the worship leader, right? Leading His disciples to sing about uh, the Passover could you imagine being there? His disciples probably went over his head. But Jesus, as hard as this, remember how hard it was for Jesus Christ. Remember the night, in a few hours after that evening, when they were singing this psalm, Jesus would say what? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass away from me. That's a very difficult task because he's going to die for the Savior, for the sin of the whole world. And by the way, that's going to be the first time he's ever going to be separated from God the Father. Not because he's sin, but because he's taken upon sin. So when he says that, he's not just like all of us saying, oh, it's hard to obey God. He's in a hard time because it's never ever in his, all of his existence would he ever be separated from God the Father. God the Son would never be separated from God the Father. Except for that moment on the cross, dying and suffering, taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin. But what word could administer to him is he would have read this verse and realized, whoa, there will be a greater deliverance that will happen. Okay. By the way, look with me also as well. There was a question in verses 5 and 6. Um, I know in the New American Standard Bible, it says, What ails you? Oh, see, literally, there's no word ails there. What literally in the Hebrew is, there's a Hebrew word ma, which is basically asking a question. What or why? I translate interpretation is this. My interpretation, I translate that as why instead of what. Uh, my translation, I would translate is, would be this. Why, O oh, see, that you flee? O uh, Jordan, that you turn back. Verse 6. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills, like lambs. In other words, the way I see verses 5 to 6 is, ask, is basically, the psalmist is asking the question, why would the sea part uh, be the, uh, split up or flee, run away so that the, uh, uh, all that? Why would the Jordan River be also be dried um, in the middle so that people cross over? Or why would the mountains skip or uh, like uh, rams and also the hills would be sh shaking joyfully, a joyful earthquake, if you ever will, with, uh, like a lamb? And that's because of God's deliverance. I love how verses 5, the rhetorical question is why, is based upon the, the past, of God's past deliverance in the story of Exodus, in the story in Joshua. But verses 6 is everything that's future. Why would there be a future way the world would shake in response to the national, uh, natural phenomenon respond in this way? It's because there's a future deliverance that will be accomplished by Jesus Christ dying on a cross. If you guys remember last, yesterday, on, uh, no, yesterday, 
Sunday. I made a point that Psalm 113 is also a Messianic prophecy when it says in Psalms 113. Do you remember in Psalm 113, I made a point that verses 6, that God will humble himself to behold the things that are in heaven and on earth. And I made the argument, this is actually predicting that God will become fully man, will come down on earth also as well to relate with us. So in light of the contextual flow of Psalm 113, kind of giving uh, anticipation of that, and also 114, that he would be uh, coming to deliver a future day where the earth would shake, when, the, when its world Savior will come. I think that's actually a prophecy of Christ. I think in light of all this, then we go on to ask, look at verses 7 to 8. Again, I think this is a very future prophecy. This is future in the sense of Psalm writing this. This is talking about Christ. Look with me also in verse 7. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. Okay, If you ever study prophecy, you'll notice that sometimes history repeats itself. You guys ever hear things people say, history repeats itself, right? Um, we see this uh, you know, often, even in secular history, in world history. But seven, verses 7 to 8, I think it's when you first look at it, it almost seems like, hey, this is talking about, remember when, Exodus happened, the people were free from Egypt already when they're wandering in the wilderness. The people were complaining, like, oh, we wish we had the food back then in Egypt. They start thinking it's like Egypt under slavery was like the great buffet, right? But they forgot, that's human nature, right? We always look, the grass is greener on the other side, okay? When God does something for us good, then we look back and say, oh, the good old days. Not forgetting, those good old days, there was a lot of bad things too. They were slave in Egypt. And they're thinking, oh, the good food, even though they're slaves, how could they have all the good food? But they were always grasses green on the other side. And then God provided food for them, okay? And then they're like complaining to God, oh, we will be starving. Oh, we'll be dehydrated. We will be dying without no water. And do you remember what God does? God allowed water in the middle of the desert. Where? By a rock providing the water, okay? Verses 7 to 8. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord, before the God of Jacob. And then it's going to describe about God, verse 8. Who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of water. At first glance, you might say this is Israel history. Remember when God allowed the rock to be water? And then at another point, God says to Moses, right, hit the stone and there'll be water. And then there's a second point when God also says, hey, just speak to the stone. The second time. Uh, God told Moses, just speak to the stone. And Moses was so mad with the people, what did he do? Did he speak to the stone? No, he striked the stone, okay? He striked the stone. I think that's actually a messianic typology pointing towards the future. I think that's a messianic typology pointing towards the future, okay? Because if you guys look at Psalm 118, if you guys could turn real quick, four Psalms later, it suddenly talks about verses 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, right? Oh, we'll get there when we get there in a few weeks. But man, this is a prophecy. You see that so many times in the Old Testament. The word stone and rock is actually two titles for the Messiah. For the Savior of the world, there's two different titles. I mean, we think of many ones, right? Like Son of God, Son of Man, uh, Prince of Peace, right? All these titles, that's one of them, is rock and also Messiah. Now, I'm going to look at, if you guys could look um, at your screen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share screen right now, okay? Uh, share screen. Uh, you, you, could you guys see my screen right now? Yes. Okay. Actually, maybe I'll look at this one, okay? I want to show you something that I think is pretty cool. 
You guys can see my screen? Yeah, I can see your screen. Okay. So only the part that I highlighted here, okay, is I want to show you guys... Okay, you girls could be here. Okay, uh, that in Israel's history, you see an Old Testament parallel and a New Testament parallel. That when you think about the story of Exodus and they were wandering in the wilderness, there's actually a parallel with Christ dying on the cross. If you remember in Israel, when they were freed from Egypt, the enemies controlled who? The Jews, yes? And also, uh, you guys can you still hear me? Okay. Josh, you can hear me still, right? Thumbs up if you guys can still hear me. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, thank you so much. I just want to make sure I don't lose control. Okay. So, and then... Okay, so Egypt also... Uh, the um, Correction. Enemies also controlled the Jews also as well during New Testament time. Also, enemies, soldiers were present when the story of the Exodus, remember, they're parting the Red Sea. And when Jesus was dying, were there soldiers present? Enemy soldiers? Yeah, the Roman soldiers. Remember the centurion and all of that. By the way, God has a plan to save them, even in the worst of situation, when they were surrounded by uh, the enemies and there was a Red Sea. And yet God also had a plan to save who? All of us and also Jesus. God the Father had a plan for God the Son. Okay, People were complaining about God. Yes, People were complaining about God too when Jesus was dying on the cross. Remember, they were mocking Him and they were saying, Hey, could you, you know, save yourself? That kind of thing. People were arrogant. Then... In the time of uh, the generation of Moses. And people were arrogant even with the death of Jesus Christ. Water was needed. Remember when they were wandering in the wilderness right after they were freed? They needed water in their complaint. And yet when Jesus was dying on the cross, did he wanted water? Yes. Okay. There was also stone in the story. when they, right? And Jesus Christ, like I said earlier, is a messianic prophecy. Is that he is the stone. Okay, we'll talk a lot more, unpack that when we get to Psalm 118. All the prophecies, there's so many Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ that is called the title stone, okay? And the stone in the Old Testament with Moses, the stone was what? Struck, yes? Same way Jesus Christ as the stone, was he struck? Yeah, he was pierced, right? Both uh, by being nailed on the cross and also remember when he was dying, right when he was about to die, they pierced his what? His side, okay? He was strike. The strike was a sin for Moses. When he struck the stone, that was sinning. He was sinning out of anger. And Jesus was also struck because of what? The sin of humanity, okay? There's also water coming out when the stone was struck with Moses' time. And there was also water and blood came out when Christ was pierced. Also as well, uh, you know, uh, when he was on the cross, I think there was all, all of that blood and all those things was basically he was, he was like suffocating, okay? He was drowning, so to speak, okay? And what was needed was provided. That was water with the Old Testament time. And also as well, we also see as well as what? What was needed was provided also what? Uh, also as well with Christ dying on the cross for our sins, okay? Okay, is my screen back to normal? Okay. I think when you look back with me to Psalms 118... We know from the Old Testament, we know from 1 Corinthians 10, it says the rock that followed them around in the wilderness, it was Jesus Christ. Could you imagine Jesus Christ reading this the night before he's going to die? He would say, yeah, I know these events because I was there. But yet also seeing that this, if God delivered great once, God's great deliverance wasn't just going to happen once. It's going to happen again as Jesus Christ read that night 
on his last supper, before he'll go to the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, before he'll go that night, being arrested by Roman soldier by, by Jewish soldiers, and then later handed Roman authorities, and be crucified by Roman soldiers. These psalms would administer to him because he saw that yes, I will do this because of a great deliverance, a far greater deliverance than the deliverance from the Jews out of Egypt, a far more greater deliverance against a more powerful foe than Pharaoh, Satan himself. He'll free all of us by the power of God, by dying on the cross for all of our sins. And like the stone of, of the past in the Old Testament, Christ as a stone would be struck and therefore provide what? A found, foundation that in Zechariah 13 would say a foundation that we could of blood that could wash away our sins. Pretty good Savior. Pretty good plan. Okay. As we go over each one, I think uh, if you're not convinced these are messianic prophecies, that's okay. I'm okay with that. But I think as we see Psalm 113, 114, and especially when we get to Psalm 118, man, it is so clear. This is a prophecy of a great Savior who came and died and saved us from all our sins. Okay. Uh, let me stop at this point.